Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. Well, hello. Welcome along to this week's podcast of the show. Well, hello. Well, hello. Um, Do you want to... Finish. We should we should finish off the max chat at the end of the show. Let's do that. Because we kind of got cut short at the at the end of the real show. So but we, we can do, do it on time the other show. Like, we're like in our own our own kind of time film here with the podcast. I always get slightly confused by things. Busy show though. We yeah, had lots to lots talk on, about. Review wise, we talked about we talked about Fantastic Four. We talked about the Diary of a Teenage Girl and the related certification issues surrounding it. Uh, the Gift as well. Joel Edgerton's directorial debut. Manglehorn with Al Pacino. Uh, Max, the dog movie, which we will we will kind of expand on after the film, after after the uh, the show rather in the podcast, and also hard to be a god, Edith's favourite film of the year. Stay tuned to find out how that one made me feel after the. Well, stay tuned to find out. Uh, and Army Hammer as well, who you had the I'm sure delight. Yes, lovely chap talking to uh, who is in the new Guy Ritchie film, The Man from Uncle. All right, here's this week's show. Good afternoon. It's Good afternoon. Just, I mean, I mean, this is becoming a regular thing as I've we just start had the in my show. Ear, yeah, try, try not, not be, be rubbish. rubbish. Yeah, there we go. The words of encouragement we get from our team seconds before coming on air. Uh, it's Edith Bowman and Robbie Collin for Simon and Mark on Five Live. It's lovely to be here again, uh, and we've got loads of stuff coming up in the show today. Loads of stuff, including a serious contender for the best film of the year. What will it be? Fantastic Four. <laughs> Wait and find out. I can't say at the moment. Oh, on the edge of my it seat. It could be, but it might be something else. But yeah, there's loads of stuff. We've got Fantastic Four, of course. Yeah. Uh, Diary of a Teenage Girl. Mm-hmm. The Gift, which is the directorial debut of Joel Edgerton. Uh, Manglehorn, latest Al Pacino movie. Hard to be a god and Max. No Not Mad Max. Just, just, Max. just Max, normal Max. Uh, and also special guest Army Hammer will be us uh, with us after 2.30 talking The Man From Uncle, which we'll be reviewing on the show next week. Uh, we're live streaming. Afternoon, you can watch the show by going to the Five Live... I always forget about that. The Five yeah. Live <laughs> yeah. websites. Yeah. Uh, later as well, we were going to be asking um, Catherine Anderson at the BBFC why they gave the diary of a teenage girl an 18 certificate which Robbie thinks is very wrong, don't you, sir? I do indeed. I think this is a, a, a real shame because it seems to me to be blocking this film's target audience, the people that should, this film should be reaching out to and, yeah. and should be seeing what's in it and, 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 and would enjoy it the most and would appreciate it the most and, and, and would see their own lives reflected in it. It's kind of legally forbidding them to see it, which I think is just galling for the for the filmmakers, I'm sure, and for the distributors. Well, we shall uh, talk about that later on when we speak to Catherine. And, and also, we've, we've kind of had a stream on Facebook of you guys talking about which films you think have been given the wrong certificate. Uh, so if you want to add into that, then please do so. You can drop us an email. Tell us about the film that you think was given the wrong certificate. Email us, mail at bbc.co.uk. You can text us on 85058 or we're on Facebook and on Twitter, which is at Wittertainment. And some of you have been getting in touch already. I've got a couple here, which is good. Um, this was a big one, actually. Amanda Little Eva Keats says, I am still horrified that because apparently blood spatter is the only thing that ups ratings. A kid had his, has his neck broken in Hunger Games by another kid, and it's totally fine to keep it at a 12. If I remember correctly, they added like seven seconds of blood for the Blu-ray, and it made it a 15. Uh, Taff Hughes says Licence to Kill got a 15 rating for violence apparently no other Bond film had shown people being eaten by sharks or burnt alive or being subjected to other forms of gory death 
sarcasm off. That brings me to my kind of example, which is... Go on. So I'm re-watching, or I have been actually for years, re-watching all the original Star Wars films with my son. He's now seven. We maybe watched them first when he was five. Um, he adores them. So after the maybe second or third viewing, on once we watched A New Hope, in the back corner, as Luke goes back, you know, Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru are in a different form. Well, there's there's smoking embers in the background, and you know it's like burning corpses. He's like that. What's that, Mum? I didn't quite know what to say. It was a you. Star Wars New Hope was a you. And that's a smouldering body. Smouldering body. Aunt Beru will never pour another cup of blue milk again. <laughs> Don't bring it's it. It's over. So yeah, uh, give us your examples of films that you think have been given the wrong certificate. As I said, email, text us, tweet us, however you fancy. Right, let's get on to the box office top ten then, shall we? And number ten, uh, we talked about this last week, which was great, and it's uh, Bajrangi Bajan. Yes, Bajrangi Bajan, which was released for the Eid weekend, uh, Bollywood production, and wasn't screened for critics as Bollywood productions don't tend to be. We do, thankfully, have some listener reactions yeah, uh, uh, this first, week. First one's from uh, Rohit Sharma, who says, I went into this expecting the usual Salman Khan film. Instead, it was the most fun I have had watching a movie since White House Down. Salman plays a shy, honest guy who finds a stranded eight-year-old mute Pakistani girl uh, who's played by Harshali uh, Malhota and then promises to get her to her home. It's great because it's a really funny journey film and a rare Indian film devoid of the cliched portrayal of Pakistan. Uh, and then Krishna uh, says, great to see uh, holding up the third week in the top ten. The movie's got career best performance from the lead Salman Khan, ensuring that there is not a dry eye in the audience by the end of the movie. The interplay of characters, Hindu, Muslim, Indian, Pakistani, is the best we have seen in Indian cinema so far. Lovely, guys. Thank you very much for getting in touch about that. I mean, it's worth pointing out, I think, that uh, Bajrangi Bajan is holding up in the top ten a lot better than Terminator Genesis, which seems to have vanished oh, completely this joking. week. So there we are. It's what Is that because they've paused the apocalypse again? They have. They, they have. have. Could, you, could, you, could you do the apocalypse on Thursday? Could we make it Friday lunchtime? Busy Thursday, busy okay. Friday. Let's talk Ted 2. Okay, okay. Nine. Ted 2, which, you know, I, I think is the, the, the same as all of uh, Seth MacFarlane's other comedy. And it's you kind hate of, him. It, I do hate you him. Hate it's subjective. I, I don't him hate funny. him. I don't oh, right, hate okay. him, but I, I, I don't admire his work. Okay. I think it's not a kind of a personal vendetta. <laughs> but I think his material is just kind of objectively and provably not funny. Um, the speed at which Ted 2 is now dropping out of the top 10, I think, means people are kind of gradually catching on to this. Ted 1. I think it made £30 million in the UK. It was a very, very popular film. Ted 2 is now, I think, about £8 million. It's now vanishing, thank goodness. So people are kind of realising, you know, if you're laughing at this film, you are actually making a mistake. These aren't jokes. Some of them look like jokes and sound like jokes, and that's why people are getting... I mean, it's, it's kind of like... Uh, if you go to try and spot a red squirrel in the forest, you know, rare, a rare creature, yeah. and uh, you, As you, you do think, often, and you think you've seen, okay, an example off the top of my head, you think you've seen one up the top of a tree, yeah. and you walk away going home thinking, that's fantastic, I've saw a red squirrel, feel really delighted. It was actually an old sock that had just been caught in a branch. That's what a Seth <laughs> film is. It's an old sock in a tree. Oh man! And Britain is waking up to this. I'm crying. I'm absolutely actually crying to that. That's brilliant. Uh, Well, will it be there next week? Robbie will have to wait with bated breath to find out. Maybe the sock will blow away. Number eight, uh, Empire Strikes Back, Secret yes, Cinema. Yes, the Secret Cinema production, which kind of sits in the chart at about the same level every week because it makes the same amount of money every week. It has the same number of admissions every week. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's there because the tickets are, you know, much more expensive. £1,800 pounds as per I think it's £75 a head. And, you know, it's a kind of a big production, uh, a, a kind of an immersive experience. You, you, you live out scenes from A New Hope and then watch The Empire Strikes Back. 
Uh, so it's basically, it's, it's normally around the number 10 place. It's moved up two places this week because of the sunny weather last weekend. Mm. Fewer people generally go into the cinema on sunny weekends than rainy weekends. The, the weekend before, of course, was a, a deluge. Yeah. And, and, and so everyone went to the cinema instead. So it's just a kind of an interesting barometer of, of the general health of the UK box office because it's ticked up a couple of spots this week. Yeah. It means generally fewer people are going, but it's obviously holding up really well and will continue to do so, I'm sure, uh, for as long as it runs. Uh, Al's been in touch. Hi, Al from Amsterdam. Uh, dear uh, Scottish faction... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I right. like that. I like our personalised introductions in the email. Uh, upon arrival to Canada Water, I noticed an increasing number of people dressed up in what was unmistakably Star Wars attire. A bit sceptical and bemused, I was rushed into what turned out to be one of the best cinematic experiences of my life. It would be all too easy to dismiss the whole thing as a theme park sort of experience, but the truth of it is that the exceptionally well recreated world of Star Wars I was dropped into was the best possible build-up to the feature itself. By the time the opening call struck I was close to tears waving my arms and screaming the way I've smirked at people for in the past and no I don't think all those beers in tattooing had anything to do with the state I was in I enjoyed the entire film like I had never before Wow, thanks, Al. When you said beers and tattooing there, I, it, it made me think beers and, and tattooing. You thought... And actually, when it, when I, I went to... I mentioned this last week. I went to a Star Wars convention. Yes! And people there, there were, I think, honestly, 40 tattoo booths where people could get Star Wars tattoos. Yeah. All busy, all the time. Did you get one? No. Oh, come on. There was a really nice one of C-3PO, which I kind of was, was flirting with, but I quite, thought better. I thought about getting Leia's buns, you know, her side buns tattooed That's a bit wide, but that was going somewhere. for a second. Leia's yeah. buns, okay. Yeah, tattooed somewhere. Right, moving on, number seven, Hot Pursuit. Shall I read out a quick email first? Yes, please you, do. Just to, uh, this is from Amy Andrews. Uh, Hot Pursuit is a summer comedy that will serve to produce a few cheap laughs and to be forgotten before the end of the year. Though it's always nice to see a female-driven film given mainstream worldwide exposure, the fact of the matter is that it's a five out of ten at most and that is being generous. Fans of Sofia uh, Vergara tried... Is that how you say her name? Sofia Vergara. Vergara, uh, Tried and tested brand of comedy will take pleasure in many of our undeniably funny moments. But overall, there just isn't enough quality in the film for me to want to suggest it over several others in a similar mode. I think that's... I mean, even for for me, that's even quite a generous assessment of it. I think it's interesting that Hot Pursuit comes during this... Uh, resurgence that's been brewing for a few years of really, really kind of seriously committed female comedy. You know, Bridesmaids was, of course, the the, the film that was held up as the, the beginning of this. We've since had the heat. Next week, we're going to be talking Trainwreck! about Trainwreck. Exactly. And and these are films that seem to allow the, the female leads to just be funny. And, and there's no kind of holds or restraints put on that. My problem with Hot Pursuit is that it requires this kind of simpering cuteness as well at the same time, which totally undermines the comedy. For example, there's a running joke about Reese Witherspoon's character, this Texan uh, policewoman, having a moustache. Now she just doesn't have a moustache, and you can tell when you know when, when she's on screen in close up. There's just not a single trace of a moustache there. Yeah. If the film is going to do that joke, you know, commit to it, yeah. and and you know, do the little makeup effect, and then make it something worth laughing about. There is a, a you know the only joke in it really that, that worked for me, but a running joke about Sofia Vergara's age constantly being stated as older and older and older than it is, and Reese Witherspoon's height constantly being stated as shorter and shorter and shorter than she is, and that's a film that's kind of ground, that's that's a joke rather that's grounded in reality, yeah. and so it kind of at least means something, and it's this idea that it just doesn't have the courage of its own convictions to to, to make the material work. All right, well, it's at number seven at the top ten. At number six, Jurassic World. Yeah, which is a film that, to an extent, is about the impossibility of making films today in the same way as classics like Jurassic Park 20, 30 years ago. And that, to me, I found really impressive. You know, you have this park, which has got to be 
bigger and nastier and more exciting and jaggier than, 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 than the park of yesteryear. Yeah. And it's that drive to for one-upmanship and to give audiences more and more that's, of course, what sends the whole thing crashing down. Yeah. I like that soul-searching from Colm Trevorrow. I think, you know, he's a director who has been fast-tracked in a similar way to Josh Trank, who makes fantastic, who made Fantastic Four, which we'll, we'll talk about later. Yeah. Been fast-tracked from a very small, kind of independently scaled film uh, all the way to this enormous blockbuster. And I think the, the, the speed of that tra uh, transmission between the two modes of filmmaking comes through in the idea of the script. So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the action set pieces. I think the chemistry between Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard is also very good. Okay, Gareth Edwards is another one who I think about that kind of fast track, you know. And who absolutely nailed it. I mean, yeah, my goodness, Godzilla. the monsters to Godzilla. Just, yeah. just, and, and Godzilla, one of my favourite summer blockbusters of recent years. Yeah, yeah, amazing. All right. Uh, there's, there's a nice actual email that I'll leave till the end after you've talked about... Um, uh, Fantastic Four actually about CGI and stuff and a okay. kind of whole good debate about it it's very very interesting uh, number five Minion which to me felt like a missed opportunity I think you know these are characters who don't speak they're kind of little silent comedy characters do something with that you know make it like Shaun the Sheep the movie and or, or even Penguins of Madagascar embrace those kind of new comic possibilities yeah. rather than just doing another Despicable Me film without Gru which is what it felt like to me okay uh, number four is Ant-Man yeah which I really love it's, it, it, it strikes a very hard uh, tone to strike this film you know it's on, on the one hand it's much more uh, outwardly comic than the other Marvel superhero films it also has uh, not just because of the nature of the hero who, who shrinks to ant size uh, has you know palpably smaller stakes this is about a, a guy played by Paul Rudd who has come out of prison and wants to, to, to re-establish his relationship with his daughter. You know, um, this is not saving the world, it's saving a family, uh, but yet the stakes feel kind of very big and, 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 and real and important throughout. I love the games that it plays with scale as well. I think it was more creative than just making someone very small or just making small things suddenly very big. There are fun yeah. ways in which that interacts. The, 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 the final showdown which takes place uh, in Paul Rudd's character's daughter's uh, bedroom with a Thomas the Tank Engine train set is just a wonderful piece of physical comedy. And you know, this is another film where you had a director, Edgar Wright, working on this for a long time. Yeah. And then he was taken off the project at the end that went to Peyton Reed. And I think, you know, there was an incredibly fast turnaround there. The film was basically rewritten, shot and edited and released within a year. And yet they pulled it off. You know, Marvel have those resources, apparently. Yeah. Um, and it, we were talking about it earlier off, off air, about the Ant-Man being a good example or almost a good example of the whole certificate thing in terms of what it yes, was Yes, it's a 12A. To me, it feels like a very, very mild 12A. I mean, nothing like on the same level as something like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. Yeah. This is my big kind of gripe being a parent with, with a lot of the superhero films is that, you know, I have a seven-year-old kid who's obsessed with every superhero under the sun. He watches the cartoons, he's got the comics, he's got the books. He can't watch a film. He can't watch the films. I might have shown him a bit here and there sort of thing, but you know, in terms of what they kind of, who they're playing those films out to, it's a very different audience to how the characters are marketed on those other kind of you know, platforms and stuff as well. It can be slightly frustrating as a parent. Just a little gripe for me this afternoon. <laughs> uh, let's move on then to number three, Southpaw. Which is a boxing film that feels like it's been made out of Duplo. I mean, it's just really Ooh. rudimentary assembled, uh, totally standard fight movie arc. Jake Gyllenhaal, obviously tremendous physical investment in the role. He's yeah. trained to look like a boxer. He looks like a boxer. The fight scenes are very, very persuasive. But this very standard arc of hitting rock bottom and then redemption through this great big Las Vegas fight at the end. I feel like I've seen a million times before. Something very interesting that came out of last week's correspondence yeah. was that younger listeners seem to get a lot more out of this film than older ones. And I wonder if it comes down to how many fights films you've actually seen yeah. before Southpaw. And if this story feels new to you, perhaps yeah. that total lack of originality doesn't really matter as much. Yeah. I mean, we, what were the ones we mentioned? You mentioned Warrior last Warrior, week. yeah, was a recent a example, one. And the thing yeah. about Warrior is it totally cleaves to that standard route through, you know, you start up high, 
you get down to rock bottom and then you build yourself back up again. But the the, the kind of side dramas in Warrior, which involve Joel Edgerton and Tom Hardy as these two brothers, uh, both of whom have to obviously face each other in the ring at the end. Uh, not boxing, mixed martial arts, I should say. Um, the dramas feel important in and of themselves, whereas in Southpaw, this kind of situation with him getting to know his daughter again, the situation with him having to work his way up from this, this kind of inner city gym run by Forrest mm. Whitaker again. The only reason those plots are happening is in order to kind of zhuzh him on his way to final glory. And they don't feel that interesting in and of themselves. Yeah. Favourite boxing film? Well, I mean, it's probably Raging Bull, I think. I, 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 off the top of my head, I, I think it would have to be that. Rocky as well. Love Rocky. Love the original Rocky. Amazing. Right, uh, where are we now? Number two, Inside Out. Yeah, which is, I think, <sighs> Pixar's greatest achievement to date. I think this is an incredibly complex and uh, thought through film that would have defeated a less experienced studio I think it probably took them the, the, the two decades that they've been making films since mm. Toy Story to get to the point where they could have pulled this off you know you've got it, ultimately quite a low key story it's an 11 year old girl moves house starts a new school worries about whether her parents are kind of happy or not don't you get me started already? and yet in, in the inside of her head as of course it would be the, these are kind of life changing world changing mm. events that interplay between the mental landscape and the outside physical landscape is so incredibly fluid and so incredibly cleanly expressed. You're sitting there going, oh yeah, it's a Cartesian mind-body dualism, easy peasy. <laughs> what they've actually achieved here, this kind of incredible talking about uh, life, our emotional experiences of life on two totally distinct levels and the way in which those interact uh, is very complex. And the, just the, the pure kind of... Uh, uh, smoothness of its assembly, I think, is 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 is, is something quite uh, outstanding. We've had a couple of really interesting uh, pieces of correspondence from this on email to from Doctor Carly Telford. As a clinical psychologist, I often despair at the portrayal of mental health in film. For every Goodwill Hunting or Garden State, there are too many films where people with emotional struggles are depicted as strange outsiders to be avoided or worse, pitied. It was therefore with some trepidation that I last night ventured to see Inside Out. Worried it would be yet another film where emotional health is portrayed in an overly simplistic or stigmatising way. Well, ever since I left that screen, I've been unable to stop thinking about it. Whilst it was stunning to look at and pass the six laugh test within minutes, the aspect with which really blew me away was how Inside Out effortlessly showed exactly what it is to be human. Being happy all the time is impossible and we all need sadness to enable us to have empathy for others, to acknowledge when times are understandably hard and to appreciate the good times even more. It seems that everyone takes something different from this film. For me, it was that being human can be hard, but that's all right. And compassionately acknowledging all aspects of how you feel can ultimately bring the joy back into your life. Ooh. She says, P.S. I will also be using clips from this in lectures forever and ever or until the anger is someone results in physical restraint. What a brilliant email. Thank you so much Thank for that, you. Dr. Carly. Uh, and this is from Gareth in Belfast. Hello, lovely Edith and equally lovely Robbie. Uh, I've just been to see Inside Out and I thought I'd send in my thoughts before they fade. This was genuinely one of the saddest films I've ever seen. I'm a 28-year-old guy that hasn't cried in about five years. I don't do emotion, but this film brought a tear to my eye. Overall, I thought it was one of the best films I've seen in a long time with a lot of laugh-out-loud moments. Pixar strikes again. Thank you. I love I'm this, not... that the film appeals to people who don't do emotion as well. Yeah, I, mean, I, yeah. I do do emotion and had to basically be removed from the snow <laughs> with a mop afterwards. Uh, but it does it does kind of tap into the, the very kind of plausible way in which our emotions work. Yeah, totally. Uh, so that was at number two. At number one, dun, dun, dun. Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, which... 
for me, feels like the first film in the Michelin Impossible franchise just to be kind of treading water. Uh, Chris McQuarrie, who I think I said on last week's show, this was his first film. What I meant to say was it was, it was his first film with Tom Cruise. Sorry, let me start that again. Go for it. Last week, I said Chris McQuarrie uh, was working with Tom Cruise after making his first film, which was Jack Reacher. That was his first film with Tom Cruise. Yeah. I got mixed up. I've gotten remixed up re-explaining it, so obviously this is some kind of mental block surrounding this movie <laughs> for me. Um, but... Chris McQuarrie, as he did in Jack Reacher, seems to be basically indulging Tom Cruise's ambitions to be this kind of larger-than-life movie star, to pull mm. off these incredible uh, real-life stunts, you know, no ropes, no visible ropes anyway, uh, no, no stuntman support. And to do this, but without kind of cha uh, channeling this, this lighthouse charisma that his star has, you know, the thing that I really cherish about the Mission Impossible franchise is that it's given directors, you know, like Brian De Palma, like John Woo, very, very distinctive filmmakers, this large canvas and a big star on which to do pretty much what they like. If you watch the original Mission Impossible film, it's a Brian De Palma film, you know, the Brad Bird one, uh, um, Ghost Protocol felt like the work of Brad Bart. And they're using Tom Cruise to do interesting things. This kind of felt to me a little bit like Tom Cruise's imagination running riot. Right, well, let's see what you guys think. This is from Guy Rowland. Uh, Robbie Collins, what? MI5, <laughs> as Paramount aren't calling it, is a hoot, a joyous, well-crafted romper, romper, romper of a film. I'd rather watch this on a loop for all eternity than sit through another equally ludicrous but criminally joyless dirge, such as any of the Bourne or Dark Knight series. <gasps> a dour period of blockbuster cinema from which we thankfully seem to be emerging. From the proper old-school score, liberally and eloquently adapting one of history's all-time great 5-4 themes, to be uh, brilliantly edited, that opera sequence, I mean, come on, to the script which both checks off all the essential series requirements and peppers them with characters enjoying themselves. This is why popcorn was invented. That's my favourite sign-off ever. Uh, dear Edith B and Mr C, I thought Mission Impossible Rogue Nation was a thoroughly enjoyable piece of fluff with an unshamedly retro side. There was even an extended suitcase at the opera. In addition, for fans of BBC Two's exquisite rev, there was the lovely treat of both Tom Hollander and Simon McBurney showing up unexpectedly. Terrific and inconsequential fun. Yours, Aidan McCarthy, winner of the Christmas Quiz at Work, two years running. Stuart Richards and Mulchard say, uh, hello the stand-ins. Mm, is that a diss? Could be, mm. could be. I, I, I'm picking up a kind of an edge there. Yeah, I think of an alternative. Come on, Stu, you can try harder than that. I, I fail to see how anybody could claim to have enjoyed part three and Ghost Protocol and then have a problem with this film. They're all of the same ilk and visually, stylistically similar. The plot is one of the more interesting and aspired adventure films for a while and for once, I couldn't tell you exactly where it was going. I don't want to oversell Rogue Nation as some sort of Tinker Tailor type intriguing battle of wits, but I think you are massively undermining its plot as merely serviceable where more thought than that has clearly gone into it. And Chris McCauley has directed more than Jack Reacher. His debut was The Way of the Gun in There 2000. we go, yes, exactly. This is what I was trying to say earlier I... and trying to say last week. There you go. That's it. That's that's and what I meant to say. finally, Lottie in London says, I'm an avid film viewer and was very excited to see more Tom Cruise death-defying stunts in Mission Impossible 5. I was extremely disappointed. The opening stunt was very entertaining and a great way to hide the fact that the rest of the film is a confusing mess. The plot became jumbled and some characters' storyline didn't make sense. After the main three stunts, they were forced to settle for your run-of-the-mill chase scenes. I much preferred Mission Impossible 4 for the not only the big stunts but also the smaller stunts, entertaining plot that is carried through for the rest of the film and character storylines that made sense. Lottie, thank you. Here we go. Uh, it's interesting that the opera scene is really working for people. This is this kind of part of the film critic's curse is that, you know, that is actually a, a reworking of a sequence from a Hitchcock movie, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Yeah. And to me, that kind of 
was the sore thumb moment when I thought these scenes, you know, independently work well, but could be reshuffled. They've kind of been borrowed from elsewhere. And there's not a coherent through line to this adventure, which I really felt worked well with Ghost Protocols. You felt the story was always driving somewhere. I know the screenplay was co-written by Drew Pierce, whose Iron Man 3 script was just completely tremendous. Mm. And it's just often on these big, big, big films, things can be reshuffled, can be rewritten and moved around. And, and, and for me, it did feel like a little bit of a, uh, some jiggling had been going on. It's Robbie and Edith with you this afternoon. Uh, we're going to be looking at the new releases after three o'clock this afternoon. But Guy Ritchie's Man from Uncle is out next week. Uh, and Robbie, you've been talking to one of its stars, Army Hammer. But give us a quick synopsis of the film, which we'll go into more detail about next week on the show. Yes, so this is based on the classic TV series in which an American and Russian secret agent form this uneasy alliance in post-war Europe, one from either side of the Berlin Wall. Uh, we have Henry Cavill as the handsome American and Army Hammer as the equally handsome Russian counterpart. Uh, it's a kind of an odd couple relationship there's grudging admiration between the two of them some tense one-upmanship and they wear some very lovely suits as well <laughs> i cannot overstress the loveliness of the suits in this film it's like jealousy of the suits <laughs> little Smidget. little bit Smidget. little bit maybe uh, all right as i said robbie will go into more detail uh, about the film next week on the show but very lucky uh, and honored to have robbie's conversation with army hammer following this clip Soviet architect traveling to Rome would never dress his woman in the clothes you try to put her in. You try to dress her like someone on your side thinks someone dressed behind the Iron Curtain. She's from behind the Iron Curtain. That doesn't mean sure to bring it with her. We need two purses, please. And every day in clutch. And grab that belt. I... No. No, not at yours. The Ravan. You can't put a pack of Ravan belt on a patoo. She's not going to wear a patoo. What's wrong with a patoo? Nothing. If you're fat, but your goes with a Ravan. It won't match. It doesn't have to match. Have you seen the price of this handbag? It costs more than my car. You can get back on your horse now, cowboy. Army, I think I spent a lot of this film uh, going, ah, when I was watching it. And not just because the rivalry between uh, you and Henry Cavill's character has just comes down to who's the best spy, but also who's the best dressed. Yeah. You know, this is a film that sort of glories in your appearance and also his appearance too. Um, how important is the, the the whole kind of costumes and, and, and hair aspects in a film like this, which is not only just set in a very specific point in the past, mm. but is also based very heavily on films that were made at that time as well? Sure, sure. You know, I think it's the same reason that films that were made at that time sort of focused on similar style and, and things like that was... Because it was a very stylish time, you know. It was it was a sort of it was after the war. It was after rationing. It was when you could dress nice. You could you could have whatever you wanted. It was sort of before. I mean, obviously the Cold War was a crisis, but there was you know other than that, it was it was about looking nice. It was about style. The look at the cars of the day. Look at the clothes people wore, and, and you'll see it in our movie. Henry gets to wear some exceptional suits. I wear a turtleneck pretty much the entire movie, but he gets some really nice suits. Uh, did that kind of did getting dressed in the costume did that help inform the character I mean at what stage did you go for the fitting and, and, and get immersed in it that way yeah I mean we had the fittings uh, probably a couple of weeks prior to starting to shoot where we tried out a bunch of outfits and you normally try them on you shoot a couple frames on camera see how they look kind of thing and once we put on that turtleneck with the jacket and the pen the slacks and the and the shoes it was just it, it just kind of clicked which hopefully hopefully it does through that process and we just kind of said, yep, that's nice, because it's, it's got a level of style to it, but it also has a, a level of sort of Soviet simplification, where, you know, he's not wearing the nicest suits that are obviously bespoke. He's wearing 
a utilitarian outfit that he can wear many places and do many things in. So it made sense for the character and sort of informed it that way. Did Guy Ritchie give you a pile of old spy and war movies to work your way through? Because there's just so many kind of references. There's a motorcycle chase in this that has shots that are basically borrowed exactly from Steve McQueen's chase at the end of The Great Escape. At The Great Escape, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Uh, you, you know, he didn't. He didn't actually. Uh, I, I did go back and sort of... I certainly went back and watched the TV show, you know, as as sort of a reference for this. Did uh, you know the TV show beforehand? I mean, had you heard? I it? had no idea when I when I heard that there was a movie called The Man from Uncle. I thought that is the strangest title I've ever heard. But that that doesn't even grammatically make sense. Uh, but then I went back and watched the TV show, and it's fantastic. You know, I got it on DVD and just spent a couple weekends kind of binge watching it. But you know, no, I'd, I'd seen those great movies that we sort of gave some homages to in our movie. I don't know if they were intentional or not, or if it's just sort of the best way to shoot a motorcycle. As befits a spy film, that's set throughout Europe. Um, there are a lot of accents in this movie. I don't think anyone apart from Hugh Grant is doing their own. No, I think you're right. How long did it take to get the, the Russian accent into place? And I mean, did you have a particular sentence you were able to bounce off? To you know what? I, I was asked this question yesterday and I did. I had a sentence that I, that I would say sort of not before every take, but at least every morning to kind of get myself right. But I, for the life of me, can't remember what it was, I, which bothers me so much. I wish I could... But uh, it takes about a week for the accent to settle before it sounds like before it sounds in your own head like you're not sounding ridiculous. Um, and we had a great dialect coach on the movie, a, a gentleman named Andrew Jack, who was there with us through the entire production. And he would sit off say, off camera with just a set of headphones and listen and come over to you and go, yeah, most of it's great. This word, you might want to try this or this is starting to sound a little bit too English or this is starting to sound too American. You know, that kind of thing, which was really helpful to have sort of an outside perspective on it. The idea of American and Russian characters working together totally makes sense for modern blockbuster movie because, you know, you can show it in America, you can show it in Britain, you can show it in Russia, you can show it sure. wherever. But the, the original TV series, I suppose, in that respect was quite progressive and maybe a bit ahead of its time. Oh, absolutely, especially given the time when the TV show was on the air, the, the mid-60s, when the tensions were really the highest, you know. So it, it was extremely progressive to do that. You know, I wish it was it's still progressive now, but like you said, it now makes it more approachable. Something that's, that really uh, cheered me up in this film is it, it seems to restore the, the, the lost art of innuendo. I mean, there's a lot of the dialogue between you and Henry's characters. Uh, it does have that little kind of slightly affectionate uh, subtext there if, if you're looking for it. Now, sure. I, I gather you workshop the scripts um, with the other cast members and also with Guy. We did heavily, yes. Who was responsible for the filth? Uh, yeah, that, that would probably be Guy. Uh, you know, yeah, the, the movie is definitely laced with double entendre and it's it's... It's it's fantastic. You don't see that much anymore. You know, maybe it's because we had uh, a very clever Englishman writing the script and there with us every day. You know, we we workshopped the script extensively at Guy's house for the most part, and we would go for, I mean, days at a time and 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 for for weeks and just go over every single scene, go over every single line. Is there a way we can make this funnier? Is there a way we can make it better? And and it was very collaborative, and and he was very open to suggestion. And if you suggested something, he might go. Oh, that's that's brilliant! Yeah, of course we're going to say that. Or he'd go, "We can't do that," you know. And you know, so it was, it was a really fun process, and to and to be included in that process and to feel like I was a part of it as opposed to just a spectator was great as an actor to get that. Did you have a particular line or exchange that you were that you added in that made the final cut that you were very proud of? Yeah, uh, I wanted to I wanted to swear quite a bit in Russian, and uh, and I did get to a little bit, but not not very much. That's the kind of thing that you know you get the film. Um, a PG twelve A rating in the UK, and then in Russia it would be an eighteen or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Is. That 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 was the main concern. 
Uh, something about the, the the pacing of this film is very kind of throwback to the sixties as well. I mean, mm. it, it's you can easily imagine a man from Uncle movie that's trying to kind of keep pace with modern blockbusters and you're throwing action scene after action scene after action scene. And, and I, I really enjoyed the fact that this film took a little time out and to luxuriate in the surroundings sure. and, um, and, and to kind of embrace that. Did that carry over onto the set at all? I mean, was this as... Did, did it feel like quite a, a tense production at the time or, or, or did that kind of extra breathing space no, carry over it, to, to, it, to Guy's method? It was anything but a tense environment. It was one of the most relaxed shooting atmospheres I've ever been in in my life. You know, I mean, especially when we were shooting in Rome and shooting in Naples and we'd break for lunch and instead of an hour, we'd, we'd take an hour and a half. Why not? And you know what? Instead of just eating out of little uh, foam containers... Let's put white tablecloth down. And in fact, we're in Italy. Let's have wine during lunch. You know, I mean, it was just this, the same way that Guy is able to apply that sort of clever sense of style to his movies. He's also the only director I've ever seen who equally applies it to every aspect of his everyday life. You know, I mean, it's, it's a skill to be able to do that in a movie. So why not apply that in other ways? So he doesn't do anything like a normal director. Everything he does sort of has that sense of flair and luxury to it, even the way he watches the filming. I mean, the, the tents that he has made with the Moroccan rugs and the... Yeah, I mean, it, 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 was, it was an amazing atmosphere to shoot in because it felt so relaxed and felt so easy. And, you know, after you'd finish a take, you walk over and just pick up a guitar that's sitting around on the walls and just start playing the guitar. And all of a sudden, someone else come up and pick up a guitar and then you're jamming. And then someone's singing an old Irish folk song. You know, I mean, it was just... There was there was nothing tense about it. I think when you see uh, Henry scoot into shot on that Vespa in Rome, it, that is Roman holiday. You know, yeah, it's like yeah. he's just arrived on yeah, the set yeah, to yeah. work. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you said this was the um, by far the easiest shoot that you'd worked on. But then you're well. I mean, you know, physically it was it was arduous, but. But in, in terms of the atmosphere, it was the easiest. But your big breakthrough, of course, was in, in, in the social network with David Fincher. I, yeah. I mean, a notoriously exacting director who will do, you know, 50, 60, 70 takes. Sure. Uh, can you kind of tell me a bit about how working with Guy compared uh, to, to, to working with David? Oh, it, it barely does. It barely does, which is one of my favourite things about this business is every single director you work with will be different than the next. There's no director who directs like anyone else, which, which is amazing because they're all able to hopefully turn out comparably good projects you know so with Fincher it, it was extremely exacting and and you know it was the sets are intentionally not relaxed environments they are a place where you are there to work your phone is not out you are not sitting unless you've been instructed to sit and you're there to do your job over and over and over and over and over again until he's happy whereas you know and and but but the flip side of that is when he's happy, you know it's right. And when he says, okay, moving on, you know there's nothing else that could go better in that scene. Everything that he wanted to be there, he's happy with. So if he wants to move on, I'm happy to move on. Whereas with Guy, it's, it's, it's a much more almost improvisational, free-flowing style where something might happen in a scene that's an accident, but it could be a happy accident if it makes it better. You know, So it, it, there's room for more flow, if you will. And and he exists in this place of, of flow where he just allows creativity and allows all of those things to just happen, and they do. It's amazing. I mean, the, the Social Network was a film that was basically orbited the, the, the this kind of interplanetary-sized ego at the, the heart of it, um, Jesse Eisenberg's character, Mark Zuckerberg. Mm -hmm. um, but were you surprised at how much the Winklevoss twins kind of caught on from that film? Because it, it, it was... I mean, th those the, the two roles that you and, and, and Josh, Josh Pence yeah. played yeah. in a very kind of a strange, intermingled way right. uh, did almost seem to kind of be as, as big a part of the film as, uh, as Zuckerberg's role. 
I, I mean, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know why they sort of took off or why, you know, why people took them. To, I mean, they are pretty compelling characters. They're strange, you know, especially in the movie, the way you see them. Do people still think you have a twin? Uh, sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> like, it, I'll be honest, for the first year after that movie, people that I'd known in the business for six years to that point would come up to me and say, you didn't tell me you had a brother. And I'd go, oh, come on, you're better than this. You, you're, you, you know this, you know. But... Um, I, th- I think the twins were just kind of compelling and fascinating. And, and you just look at these guys and go, they just don't get it. Like, j- you got $60 million. Go away. You know, it, 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 they're just, it, it's, 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 a funny, it's a funny thing seeing these two grown men who, you know, are so similar and dress the same. And, you know, they're odd. <laughs> I have to ask as well, you, you're playing opposite Superman in this film. Now, uh, before The Social Network, you were slated for the, uh, the Justice League film that was going to be to play Batman, right? That was, that was going to be made by George Miller, the director of Mad Max Fury Road. Right. How yeah. far down the line did that actually get? Because that was before the, really the superhero movie boom. Oh, we, were, we had done camera tests and we were, I think, a week away from starting to shoot when the Australian writer's strike happened. And then there was a, a change in government policy in Australia where they changed their tax rebate system. So I think we were supposed to get 40% back of what was then, I think, going to be something like a $300 million movie or something. It was going to be one of the largest movies Warner Brothers had ever made. Uh, and then so the Australian government changed their tax structure, and we were going to not get the 40% rebate, which of $300 million is enough money for them to go, uh, maybe we should just pump the brakes on this. And they pumped the brakes, and it kind of brought it to a screeching halt. I mean, do you still have harbor a desire to to play? No, uh, no. And to be perfectly honest, I'm so relieved that I didn't have to take on the role of Batman at 19 years old, knowing now how little I knew at 19. You know, I mean, I I was I wasn't ready for anything like that. It, it, it was it was a crazy thing, and and I think I I don't think that people were ready to see a 19 year old Batman. It's a little young. It's hard to believe in any way. You know, it's like it's like his parents just got murdered. You know, I mean, it's it's it's. It's too young, I think, for the for a role like Batman. I'm not just saying this because uh, we're, we're we're in an interview situation. I, I genuinely think the Lone Ranger was a massively undervalued movie. Do do you regret not being able to go back and play that character again in the same way that obviously Johnny Depp's been able to to revisit Jack Sparrow in, in numerous parts of the Caribbean films? Well, well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Uh, no, no, honestly, I think in ten years' time, this film is going to be a, a big reevaluated thing. You know, it's just crazily ambitious and, and well, and from unique. your mouth to God's ears. You know, the thing the thing with going back and doing that is. It would be difficult. You know, I mean, physically, that was one of the toughest experiences I've ever had in my life. You know, it was about 10 months of making that movie, of just riding horses through the desert and and doing all that, you know, kind of physical stuff. But it was the greatest movie-making experience I've ever had in my life. I truly became family with every single member of the crew. We spent basically six months at one point camping out in the middle of nowhere in the deserts. I mean, it was just... It was a beautiful experience that I would hate to try to go back to and recreate. So I'm, I'm thrilled I got to do it once. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you liked the movie, but... It had a serious know. contingent of supporters in the UK, actually. There was a small group of UK critics that yeah, really yeah. seriously championed it. And I do honestly believe, you know, time will, time will kind of prove us right. Well, thank you. Army, thank you very much. No, thanks for having me. So, Army Hammer, uh, we're going to talk more, obviously, about uh, Man From U.N.C.L.E. next week. Yes. That's when it comes out. But I, he's, I'm really interested in his kind of career path. And it was great that you brought up sort of past stuff. But looking forward to the Ben Wheatley project. Yeah, Free Fire, one, that's right. It's quite, really quite an incredible about. ensemble cast. For yeah, that. and Ben Wheatley generally just high-rise as well. When, yes. Which has just been announced for a film festival. Is that right? Yep, it's in San Sebastian and it's somewhere else as well. And I think... 
Possibly there's some other some other births are, are, are due to be announced as well. I can't yeah. wait to see that. Um, all right, well, listen, we'll have more from uh, about the man from uncle next week on the show. Luxuriate, is what I heard you say that in your... That's yes, a word the, that for me just just sort of talks about the film. That's the, 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 word the story about it. the Moroccan rugs behind the camera Love did that. not surprise me. When you're watching this film, you know, you can feel those rugs. Right, we'll talk more about Moroccan rugs next week on the show. Uh, first up, though, <laughs> what a t- hard what to a be. Teaser. Wow, hard to be a god. Hard to be a god. Oh my goodness! Hard to be a god is the sixth and final film from a Russian director called Alexei Garman, and um, it, it's based on a novel uh, by the Strugatsky brothers, who have inspired a lot of Russian sci-fi over the years. Um, Roadside Picnic, most famously, Andrei Tarkovsky uh, adapted into Stalker. Yeah. So it has this kind of enormous pedigree. The film was uh, made, I mean, really, um, German first came up with the idea in the 1960s and he finally got it to a stage where it could be filmed in, in 2000. Yeah. Shooting it took six years and then editing it. Felt it, like that watching it Editing well. it took, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Just, you know, just shush a minute. And let, me, <laughs> let me set this up, okay? Because many opinions are available on this movie. Okay, there will uh, be many had. It was shot uh, It was shot over the course of six years. The, the, the shoot was apparently completely deranged and chaotic. Mm-hmm. And then it was edited between 2007. Uh, German actually died in 2013 before he'd finished the edit. He was almost done, but it was kind of left this kind of un- unfinished project. His wife and son, uh, his wife was a famous Russian screenwriter and his, his son is a director as well. Never feel uh, bad. Both collaborated on finishing off the edit. And I think, you know, the, 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 the sheer kind of craziness of its production is a mere morsel of the, the, the craziness that's actually in the film. I have to say, every day that passes since I've seen Hard to Be a God, I've become more and more convinced that this is a serious kind of masterwork. This is a very, very important film. It's three hours long. It's in black and white and it's in Russian. So it's it's, it's already watching this is is quite a big ask. And also Alexei German's work is not particularly well known. It's the first and only one of his six films that I've seen. His previous one, uh, Crystal Yov, My Car, was at Cannes in 1998, which is slightly before my time. That was the year when Mark Kermwood famously had his Lars von Trier related breakdown in the screening of The Idiots. So it was obviously, it was just, <laughs> it was one of those years. Okay. Um, the premise. Yeah, tell uh, me. Okay. What's the story? The I tried. There's tell me. A human astronaut called yeah. uh, Don Romata has yeah. been sent to a nameless alien world, which is basically like a mirror image of Earth. But its its development has become stuck 800 years in the past for, from where Earth is now. It's kind of got to the Dark Ages and just will not tip over into the Enlightenment, into the Renaissance. So you have this this world that is basically trapped in this kind of perpetual uh feast of, of, of filth and mud and slime and snot and entrails all over the place. Mm-hmm. And there's basically anti-intellectual purges have started uh, in, in University City of Arkanar now spreading around the planet uh, because the general population don't want to progress. They're happy with how things are. They're kind of content with how things are ticking over. This is all laid out in an opening voiceover and th- which takes around th- maybe three minutes while um, Gaman's camera kind of introduces you to the streets of Arkanar, which are totally revolting. I mean, the most disgusting kind of... Think uh, Monty Python the Holy Grail directed by Bruegel. I mean, it That's is just... That's what I... I just wrote that down. I just wrote it down as if some really bad student had tried to film their own home movie version of Holy Grail meets Game of Thrones badly. It makes Game of Thrones... I don't know even why you bring up Game of Thrones. This film makes Game of Thrones look like Love Actually. Um, <laughs> once that initial plot is got out of the way, though, this is basically... Don Romata is there as an astronaut and 
I understood this, that he was there to try and kickstart the Renaissance and get things moving again, rescue these intellectuals. A long part of the film where he's, he's hunting around for a doctor who seems to be important. Other people have, have suggested that perhaps the film is just about him kind of being there to observe what's going on. Uh, what we do know is that after that introduction, and he just spends the rest of the film wandering around Arkanar, these tiny little lanes, caves, meeting the population, kind of working out what's going on, is that the pogroms that are unfolding on all sides are basically unstoppable. And this is a society condemned to just basically spiral into hell. Um, there are a lot of very difficult things to watch in this film. There are the, the, the deaths of the intellectuals when they happen can be pretty stomach churning. People are drowned in latrines, they're strung up to be pecked by crows, you know, much, much worse things that I can't talk about on, uh, on air at all. And it's the idea that he is being drawn into this and not just wanting to stop it, but actually quite liking it. He's elevated this noble thing, you know, the title, Hard to Be a God. The people see him as being godlike, a godlike presence. And the idea that he's able to survive quite nicely while all this madness is unfolding is, is a key part of it. I think this is a hugely, hugely important film. I tried and five times to watch it. Please finish what you were yes, saying. Let's talk I rudely a little bit more. interrupted no, no, you let, about let, how to I, be I, God. I, no, I think this is, um, is a really interesting reaction to this film because, you know, you have to be in the right frame of mind to tackle this. As I say, three hours long, black and white, Russian, and kind of abrasively disgusting as well. You know, this is not a film that has a conventional plot at all. It's basically the camera gliding and stumbling through these enormous tableau of all kinds of strange human activity. You know, the weird kind of noises, uh, sausages dangling into the frame, trumpets poking out and honking, constant giggling, this kind of slime and strangeness dribbling down the walls. And this is not like Saw, you know, this is not an endurance test where you're there to be kind of shocked and jolted. Yeah. It's about being immersed in this kind of sense of chaos and it just progressing and progressing and progressing. And, and, and at the same time, no kind of coherent narrative. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that, you know, I think a lot of people will, will, will come, if, if, you know, if you put a toe in the water in this film, as you did, and just find it will be too much. You know, you have to be in the right frame of mind to power through. What do I need to do to last the three hours, Robbie? I mean, I, I kind of, I appreciate that there, I mean, I, watching it and starting to watch it, I was like, I really, I want to try and get through this. Like standing on the top diving board and, and wanting to dive in, but not having the courage to do it almost type thing. It's like, I know that I would reap the benefits of watching this film and get something out of it if I could get through it. I just couldn't get through it. Yeah, and it is it, it does have that kind of supreme unnervingness about it. You know, to me, it felt like, you know, um, Ash in the Evil Dead going down into the basement and finding the Nepro Necronomicon Ex Mortis. It's kind of, it's like an encounter with this forbidden artefact. It's almost as if the film shouldn't exist and that you're watching something that actually tells you something that you shouldn't know. Mm. And it's it's that that's really kind of stayed wrenching away inside me since I've seen it. As I say, I think this is an, an enormous, enormous achievement. What a film to buy out on. All right, I'm going to give it another go. I'm going to give it another Do. go. Uh, right, how to be a god then was the film. Hard. Hard to be a god. <laughs> hard and how hard. It's how and it's hard. It's how to be a dog. That's the film. If <laughs> you like Max, the sound of that, not? how to be a dog, go out and see it. No, hard to be a god. You know, this is absolutely, if you're going to try one difficult film this year, make this it. All right. Well, uh, coming up, we've got some uh, lot of reviews coming up as well. What are we going to be talking about? Yeah, Fantastic four, four. We've got Diary of a Teenage Girl, The Gift, Manglehorn and Max, which is how to be a dog. Uh, and we're also going to talk to uh, Catherine at the BBFC about why they gave the Diary of a Teenage Girl an 18 certificate. And um, we've already had a couple of emails in from people who've seen the film 
uh, and have comments on it as well. And a lot of you as well getting in touch with your comments on examples of films you think were given the wrong certificates. So keep that coming. You can do that via email, mail at bbc.co.uk. You can text us 85058. Uh, we're on Facebook and, of course, on Twitter at Wittertainment. And we are live streaming. Now, by the way, there's still time to enter Mark and Simon's Well Done You competition for amateur filmmakers. The short version is you have to make a two-minute film in any genre which meets the BBFC's U certification. The closing date is Friday, August the 28th at 6pm and you'll find loads more information about how to enter up online if you head to bbc.co.uk forward slash well done you and that's the letter U, not Y or U, just well done you using the letter U. Right then, shall we talk Fantastic Four? Yes, uh, or as I think of it, four. Oh dear. Now, this is a film around which a certain degree of controversy has been whirling for a while. And the, 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 this kind of peaked, I think, this morning with the director, Josh Trank, tweeted uh, the following. He actually deleted it reasonably quickly, but it was kind of, you know, his view is out there now. And he said, a year ago, I had a fantastic vision of this and it would have received great reviews. You'll probably never see it. That's reality, though. Oh. And the impression that you get when walking out of Fantastic Four is that it's very clear that in its final form, it's not a film that anyone would ever set out to make. You know, I think what's it's it's not irredeemable. I think you know this this is a Fantastic Four, of course, Marvel's oldest and longest-serving superhero team. And what Josh Trank has done, he directed Chronicle previously, which was the, really the film that got him this gig about these three teenage boys who discover they have superhero-like powers yeah. and film themselves, kind of flying through the air, uh, bashing cars and bad guys out of the way and things. And it's all done uh, in a found footage style. But it was this idea of. Uh, encountering powers and, and 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 them being kind of strange and alien and not necessarily a straightforward boon. Now, I'm assuming what happened was Fox said to Josh Trank, oh, we really love Chronicle. We just want you to do this again for Fantastic Four. Now, of course, the strange thing about Fantastic Four is that it was because it started in the 1960s and it's always had that kind of super wholesome family-like atmosphere about it where Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic, is this father figure, you know, mm. Sue Storm, uh, the kind of glamorous mum, and then uh, Johnny Storm, the Human Torch, the naughty brother, uh, and then uh, uh, Ben Grimm, who turns into the thing, of course, is this, this kind of weird, weird uncle or, or, yeah. or dog character or something. So they've, they've kind of departed very, very drastically from that. What I think seems to have happened is after departing, they've panicked and there were a lot of reshoots. And they've tried to bring it more back into a traditional uh, superhero blockbuster towards the end, which just hasn't kind of worked. You, you can hear, I think, the, 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 the tension and the sort of supreme lack of cast chemistry in this clip that we've got, um, where there's Miles Teller, who plays a very young Reed Richards, and, uh, and Kate Mara as Sue Storm, who are lab partners working on a device that can transport matter between this uh, dimension and another one. Here they are uh, dis discussing their work. Amazing. Oh, thanks. Amazing you didn't black out the entire Western Hemisphere. Hmm? You basically ripped a hole in the fabric of space-time with unspecked components and no supervision. Yeah, that was uh, an accident. And if by accident you upped the power, you would have created a runaway reaction that opened a black hole and swallowed the entire planet. Well, I'm glad that didn't happen. They, sound, now, they, just, they sound really uninterested it's, it's, in the work they're doing. It's almost as if they're being shot on two separate stages and and, 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 and possibly that's what happened because, you know, we know there, there, there were serious reshoots here. Yeah. But the chemistry just doesn't come together. And for the Fantastic Four, obviously, this is supposed to be a family-like unit of superheroes. The chemistry yeah. is all important. Really, the Fantastic Four film that's already the perfect expression of this is The Incredibles, the Pixar's movie, which the Pixar movie, uh, which was the, the, the you know... 
that was obviously heavily inspired by the Fantastic Four comics. It was about a family of superheroes, a real kind of a nuclear family of superheroes. Yeah. And, and, and that's very dramatically not what Josh Trank has gone for. The first half of the film is basically taken up with them building this transporter. So they don't get their superpowers until the halfway mark. There's 50 minutes of, of, of this kind of uh, lab uh, toing and froing to get through. There's also a very long prelude uh, with Reed Richards and, uh, and, and, and Ben Grimm, who when he's older is played by Jamie Bell. Um, kind of working away in a basement building the first version of this transporter. They transport to the other dimension, they come back, something goes wrong and they're imbued with these special powers. Um, but the powers aren't seen as being a force for good. It's actually, what I think Trank is drawing on is, is you know, Cronenberg-style body horror, like The Fly, where you have disgusting transformations happening. When when Reed's, uh, when Miles Teller's character, Reed Richards, looks down at his elongated limbs, because Mr Fantastic's powers, of course, being able to stretch his limbs, he looks horrified at what his body's become, and it's 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 shot in a way that it's meant to be kind of disgusting. Now we get up to that point, then the film kind of cuts, and there's this one-year jump in the narrative, and then it all starts to kind of really go to pot. You've got um, a, a duel with Doctor Doom, who's played by um, Toby Kebbell, yeah. uh, who the, the character I think turns up around ten minutes from the end of the film. It very much feels like a late addition. There's this kind of um, very grubby, not particularly well animated fight off on an alien planet, which doesn't really have any relevance to what's going on in the rest of the film. And, and there's this this sense that there's never any heroism involved. You know, these characters, they get their powers, they're horrified by them, they're kept separate, they're not allowed to work together until this climax. And it just feels like a cut and shut of two ideas, neither of which were ever going to work on their own. And, you know... Uh, Fox have struggled and struggled to get Fantastic Four to work. There was a series, they did two films in the, the mid-noughties uh, directed by Tim Story where they kind of had this sort of weird B-movie cartoonish sheen to them. Mm. Really, there's no reason that these characters can't work in the same way that Joss Whedon has done with the Avengers where you can have rounded, kind of fascinating characters bouncing off one another in this really interesting way but all with their, their separate stories as well. And I wonder, I, I sincerely hope that that's the, you know, because there will be another Fantastic Four film. The, yeah. you know, the property has just, it's been running for half a century. You know, It's not going to end the, now. It won't end now, but this is absolutely a, a, a false step. Um, do you think that Josh Trank's ever going to get to the, the the film that he wanted to make? We'll ever see the light of day through. I don't know DVD director's cut, anything like that. No, I doubt it. Okay. I doubt it. I think this is just a, a, a bit of one to let go of and move on from. Ouch. Uh, right. Thank you very much to all you guys who've been in touch. Uh, Farrand in Rochdale says, no matter where I look, all I see is mass amounts of negative feedback for the new Fantastic Four film. Uh, it's all one star or two star reviews with added comments on how bad or boring it is. Throw me on the positive pile. I saw the film earlier in the week and while it's not up to the high standard of Marvel Studios fare such as the Avengers or Captain America, the Winter Soldier, it's not Batman and Robin Terry either. It's the most realistic take on a highly surreal team. The film itself is rather short for a comic book film and it's quite right in its storytelling. It is however just an origin story that will lead into something else. Nothing more, nothing less but I expected that. Adam, sorry in Rochdale, wasn't Farron, sorry Adam. Uh, who else have we got here? I have got uh, James Boothman who says, Dear Doctor Doom and The Thing. Which is which? I think I've got to be The Thing. Have you? Okay. Uh, I managed to catch a screening of Fantastic Four on Tuesday night at a nearby branded cinema and was quite surprised by the sights of discontent around me at the end credits. I honestly thought it wasn't all that bad. Yes, it feels like an introduction to a better film and it also takes far too long to get going. However, I appreciated the darker tone and the moments of near horror that Josh Trank injected into a series that felt far too cartoonish in the past incarnation. The status quo has taken hold of far too many recent Marvel adaptations, so an attempt to be different is something I 
respect, especially after the dull on-the-rails meander that was Ant-Man. Fantastic Four is nowhere near Guardians of the Galaxy good, but the promise on show made me interested to see what they can do next. I think there's some real truth in that. You know, Marvel Studios do what they do so well that we're becoming used to superhero blockbusters being presented in a certain way. And what I hope, although my own kind of memory of enjoying the Fantastic Four comics as a kid, yeah. is that family dynamic. Yeah. I hope I would have been open to a film that went a totally different direction had it been successful in its own terms. Uh, this is from Jane. She says, I'm not a comic book reader, so I don't have any idea about the source material. Uh, but it is possible that this is just an inherently unfilmable story. I've never seen the Roger Corman adaptation, but the last two films failed to set the world alight. And now we have this, a film that just doesn't seem to ever get going. Miles Teller, so wonderful in Whiplash, fails to display any charisma and there's absolutely no chemistry between the film's stars. Michael B. Jordan's Johnny Storm is the only actor who manages to emerge from the film with any plaudits and his spark means that scenes without him feel flat. Such a shame, as I'm a fan of Teller and Kate Mara, but I can't see this being the springboard for a franchise. Yeah, it's this idea keeps on coming up of the, the the sheer lack of events in this film you know it does take forever to get going it's almost like the first act of a film like iron man where he's kind of building his suit in the cage yeah in, in the cave rather that's where fantastic four ends and you want to see these guys out together fighting crime together yeah all right let's move on to diary of a teenage girl then shall yes we? okay so this is the first film uh, from a, a director called mario heller it's based on a semi-autobiographical novel by a, a writer and cartoonist called phoebe gluckner which is set in san francisco in the 1970s and it centers on uh, Minnie getz who's a 15 year old who is jumping from uh, childhood into adulthood in in with what could only really be described as ravenous abandon uh, she's seizing on on her kind of uh, her changing body and the, her new perceptions of the world around her, and is recording uh, everything that's happening to her into this tape recorder every night in order to kind of keep track and analyze and and and, and kind of fathom her way out around uh, how the world is. Uh, her mother, who is played by Kristen Wiig, uh, is not particularly much help uh, in in getting her in touch with how the world actually is. Here is a typically awkward conversation between the two of them. When I was in high school. Um boys were all over me. <laughs> like my dad? Yeah. Yeah, your dad and I were crazy about each other. He wasn't messed up then. I mean, he was just a wannabe artist with a the world attitude. And he rode a Triumph Blackbird. Have I ever told you that? And my parents hated him. It was so hot. You know, you're not going to have that bod forever, man. I know that's not very feminist of me to say, but you might be happier if you put it out there a little bit, you know? Wear some makeup, wear a skirt once in a while. Jesus. Get some attention. You have a kind of power, you know? You just... You don't know it yet. And my parents hated him. It was so rad. The script for this is just it's a great, fantastic. It's a great line. It's a great line. Now, the, the uh, actress who plays Minnie is uh, a British actress called Belle Powley. Um, she was uh, in A Royal Night Out earlier this year playing Princess Margaret. This is a real kind of a serious star-making performance. She's fantastic. You know, she's 23 years old. She plays 15 totally convincingly. Mm. And not just the naive 15-year-old at the start of the film, but she expresses this organic pro uh, move from that state of naivety to this more worldly-wise. Uh, still, you know, a, in, a girl in the middle of her teens at the end of the film, but is kind of soaking up all the, the, the kind of details of the world around her. She wants to be a cartoonist. 
And this is kind of um, a, a recurring motif in the movie is that her cartoons that are in her head come spilling out into the real world. And this can sound possibly a little like you know, an, an affectation, a little bit kind of hipster, a little bit kind of too try hard indie. But what's great about this is it's her kind of clothing the world in her own thoughts and yeah. trying to suss them out and trying to make sense of what's going on. So wallpaper her mind, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. And one of the main things she's trying to make sense of is Monroe, who is her uh, mum's boyfriend, who's played by Alexander Skarsgård. He's 35 years old and she decides, many basically decides that she's going to seduce him because uh, in that way that when you're a teenager you don't really understand your place in the world you don't really know what's kind of right and what's wrong in those, mm -hmm. in those senses and she decides that this this guy might be her only uh, chance of a sexual relationship in her life so she goes out of her way to seduce him and uh, Monroe being a bit of a deadbeat who lounges around in the city all day watching children's television programs uh, decides to kind of let this happen and he will absolve responsibility of this by calling Minnie during the film uh, things like an infomaniac and it's this idea that, you know, she is, she's not that, it's because, but her forthright manner is because she doesn't understand where she fits in the world yet. And she's kind of feeling her way. And I think this is the real kind of sticking point with the BBFC that, have, that felt in this film, which we'll, we'll talk about in uh, in a minute. But they've, they've kind of misinterpreted that for an endorsement of what she actually does. I think, you know, this film is totally, it has a joyful explosiveness about it. Mm. In the same way, actually, as um, Blue is the Warmest Colour, the, the, the French coming-of-age movie that came out um a couple of years ago, which I totally loved. That film, though, felt mediated through an older gaze, and I think unmistakably a male gaze as well. You know, yeah. you were kind of looking in on this relationship between these two beautiful young women, thinking, oh, you know, how wonderful to be so young and so yeah. intensely in love and so passionate. Um, what The Diary of a Teenage Girl does is it just eyeballs you straight down the barrel of the camera and says, this is how it is. You know, you are not looking in on something else. You are part of this. You've experienced this. This is how life felt for you. And it gets that totally, totally right. And, uh, you know, rumbling away in the background as well, I should say, is this subplot to do with Patty Hearst, who was this uh, socialite who was kidnapped during the 1970s. It was a news story in, in San Francisco. And people are kind of watching the story unfold on the news and they're saying, you know, oh, um, what happened was she was abducted by a cult and they ended up doing bank robberies and all sorts of crimes. It was this idea was, you know, was she brainwashed? Was she, could she be judged to be in control of her actions yeah. as a 17 year old? Or was she kind of, were things impressed upon her at the time? This is this incredibly clever and subtle parallel is drawn between this big dramatic news story that's unfolding nationally and also Minnie's own life because she's in exactly the same situation, you know. Are people making her do what she does? Is she in charge of what she's doing? Who knows? It's up for discussion. I'm never a big fan of the world of the cold kind of coming of age film sort of thing, but I think this is just such an honest, honest depiction of that whole kind of world and a great exploration of it as well. And there is such a double standard in this genre because lots of coming of age films, 99% of them surely, are around male characters. And there's yeah. a sense of watching these guys, you know, have their first kind of fumbling experiences with a girl, and there's this kind of go on, my son, come on, get in there, yeah, you know, yeah, do yeah. do your best. And when it flips, and it's a female character, yeah. we can't handle it, and everyone yeah. goes crazy. Uh, right, so as you've already heard with Robbie, there is a bit of discussion going on about the British Board of Film Classification's decision to give the diary of a teenage girl an 18 certificate, with some arguing that it means the target audience can't see the film. Uh, we can talk to the BBFC's Head of Communications right now and say good afternoon, Catherine Anderson. Hi, Catherine. Hello, Edith. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thank you so much for sparing the time to come and chat to us about this. It's a pleasure. Um, can I start by asking you kind of why the decision was made to give it an 18? Um, well, the decision was made because of the amount of strong sex in the film and also the sex references and the drug use, um, which just were too frequent and sustained for a 15 classification, unfortunately. And how many people were involved in making that decision? And there has been um, a, a, a revelation made that it was entirely made up of men as well. 
Um, that's not the case, actually. The uh, film was seen by a couple of teams and also the director, and it wasn't an all-male panel. Um, I should know because I was there as well. Um, and I think I'm a lady the last time I checked. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't the case, I'm afraid, that it was an all-male panel. But um, it went through the usual procedure that it would do at the board. Catherine, if I can actually come in, I think, you know, you mentioned strong sex as being a, a key factor in this. Uh, but, you know, there isn't any full frontal nudity in the film. There isn't any kind of sexual violence that might be mentally scarring, I don't think. And, uh, you know, it, it just seems like these are... You know, if you limit this film to people who are 18 years old, I mean, there's a one of the the qualifiers in the in the BBFC statement was that you there's a graphic pencil drawing of a sex act in the film. This is a pencil drawing. You know, you've got people age of consent in this country 16, so you have people that can actually do their sex act in real life, but can't look at a pencil drawing of it, which just seems kind of uh, crazy. Um, well, we'll start with the pencil drawing. Um, that actually wasn't wouldn't be an 18 rated issue in isolation at all. Um, that's just included in the long insight just to let people know to expect that it's there. Um, it was actually just the frequency of the sex scenes and also conflated with the drug use in the film, which is largely inconsequential, and also the very, very strong and numerous sex references that the characters make, which as a whole just combined to take it above the 15 guideline and into, albeit a low 18, but still an 18. So you, you've mentioned, though, that it's inconsequential, and it's, so this is presumably because copycat behaviours are a concern. Um, it, it can be. I mean, at the 15 level, we, we say that drug use should not be endorsed by a film. And although, you know, there is quite a lot of drug use in this film, and you wouldn't necessarily say the character saying drugs are great, you know, it's, it's not seen to have any negative consequences. And for us at 15, that is a problem, because parents tell us that's a problem at the 15 level, and they think that kind of content should be restricted to adults. Was it a, a distinction that was made easily? Was it, you know, after after viewing the film once, it was kind of it's an eighteen, or was it something you kind of that was you had to come back to again and again? Um, no, I mean, there's always a lot of discussion here, and we are in the habit of playing devil's advocate with each other, and and I think here the arguments went in both directions for the reason you say, but ultimately at the end of the day, the collective decision was that the film was a low eighteen, and. There wasn't a huge amount we could do about that. I mean, we have to classify in line with the guidelines, which um, Mark Commode calls our contract with the public, which they are. You know, we can't just vary it because we think, oh, in this case, we're not sure. But we were sure this was a low 18. Um, we've had an email from Martin Rochdale who caught a preview of the Diary of a Teenage Girl earlier this week and found it to be a refreshing change to some of the coming-of-age drivel that far too often fills the screens. Minnie is a wonderfully complex character and the film honestly presents her messy but informative journey towards adulthood. For me, the film was neither an obvious 15-rated film nor an obvious 18-rated film. Upon reflection, I could perhaps understand why Diary of a Teenage Girl has been awarded an 18 certificate for its overall tone, particularly in the way the affair between Minnie and Monroe is resolved. The focus remains solely on the way the relationship has shaped who Minnie has become by the end of the film, which is perfectly in keeping with the way the action is presented solely from Minnie's viewpoint. Diary of a Teenage Girl perhaps presents an unlawful relationship in an insufficiently negative manner to make the 15 certificate appropriate. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Um, I mean, yes, it, it is a very tricky storyline. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it, it's more about the frequency of the sex scenes and the sex references and the drugs that 
kind of trumps the other arguments about whether this is suitable for teenage girls. Um, in the past, when we've spoken to parents about what they think is suitable for the 15 rating, a lot of them have questioned just how adult 15-year-olds are and the way teenagers develop at different rates. So unfortunately, um, it is a low 18 film, despite what your, read, what your listener says. Did you say that teenagers had watched it when you were classifying it? Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> Definitely not. I thought you said at the start when I said who'd class, you said that, that, that young people had watched it. I just wanted to know what age. No, no. Okay. I think if I can just quickly pick up yeah. on something that you mentioned, it was this idea that uh, bad behaviour has to be seen to be punished within the world of the film. I think th- this is something, and it, it kind of harks back to the... Um, a discussion that blew up around Martin Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street as well, is that if a film shows people doing something that is kind of morally dubious, and, you know, I think the the central relationship in The Diary of a Teenage Girl is morally dubious, to say the very least, you've got a 35-year-old guy basically exploiting the fact that her, his, his girlfriend's daughter uh, wants to sleep with him. But the reason that that relationship goes ahead, and, you know, this is, you know, it, it seems to ring very true, is that it's because the people that are involved in it don't necessarily think it's a bad idea at the time. And to kind of impose that kind of outside moral judgment on it kind of cheapens and I think weakens the actual moral force of the film. You know, Wolf of Wall Street, the first two halves of that film, the, sorry, the first two halves, the first two thirds of that film have to look like a party in order for the kind of realisation of what's been going on to hit hard uh, at the end in the way that it does. And I think, you know, the Diary of a Teenage Girl, Minnie is able to make that journey as a result of that. And I think that's a really useful message for 15, 16, 17 year old cinema goers. And I, I'm, I'm very, very sorry that they won't be able to, to, to see it in the cinema. Um, Catherine, we really appreciate you coming on and uh, and chatting to us today. And um, it's, yeah, fascinating. And also sometimes, you know, infuriating when you disagree with the decisions that are made. No, of course. And goodness, I'm not saying break the law if you're 15 years old. That's not what I'm saying. Okay, do not break the law to see this film. But you can petition your local authorities about these things and they can make exemptions from BBFC uh, classifications. I think of all the films to kind of make, make the case for, you know, this is this is absolutely a vital one. Catherine, have you got anything final you'd like to add? Um, just thank you for having me on and anyone can read about the film on our website and our apps if they're interested. In Brilliant. It. Catherine, thank you very much for that this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Um, but listen, we've got loads of stuff to talk about. First up, let's do TV movie of the week, shall we? Uh, and a lot of you have been making a guess as to what Robbie Me will go for. I mean, there's so much on what we Killer Joe thing from Another World, Indiana Jones Temple of Doom, Bridesmaids, Legally Blonde, Neighbour, uh, Totoro, Life of Pie Man, Fell to Earth. I mean, huge list. Ben Keeler says, I think Robbie will probably pick My Neighbour Totoro uh, on offer this week. Uh, this week's list reminds me that I still need to watch The Man Who Fell to Earth, considering I'm already a big fan of Nick and Sci-Fi and Bowie, but my own re- recommendation would be the brilliant Gross Point Blank with a great soundtrack. Uh, Mike says, Killer Joe's a film I wouldn't have seen if it weren't for the good doctor's recommendation, but I'd pick Bridesmaids. <laughs> Harriet says, no idea what Robbie will pick, but I pick My Neighbour Totoro, my favourite film, Grin Emoticon. Uh, Robin says, I'll be watching The Man Who Fell to Earth because I never have. I would be stunned if Robbie didn't pick My Neighbour Totoro. And Rachel says, hard candy. People are getting to know my taste. 
Yeah, that's, my neighbour Totoro. It's my neighbour Totoro. Is that then, a scary thing though? That get the no, kind no, I think it's it, it, it's kind of uh, it's kind of encouraging. I think it's 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 it's, it's, um, it's it's just such a great film. But I do want to also say for Bridesmaids, you know, a couple of weeks ago I chose as the TV movie of the week uh, David Fincher's Zodiac, yeah. and then sat down ready to watch it and put on five minutes of Pitch Perfect and ended up watching Pitch Perfect instead <laughs> because it's just that kind of film. I think Bridesmaids as a kind of a primer for Trainwreck to, to sort of remind oh. you for where kind of women driven comedy is now would be a, a great choice. But my neighbour Totoro. One of the all-time great animations by uh, Hayao Miyazaki. Um, weirdly, a kind of coming-of-age story as well. There were two much younger girls, uh, Mei and Satsuki, who um, move uh, to a house in the countryside with their father and discover these strange kind of owl-like creatures living in the forest behind their house. Um, it's very kind of ambiguous, neither explicitly happy nor explicitly sad in the same way uh, that The Diary of Teenage Girl kind of nails that weirdness, uh, the, the, the strange kind of getting the feel for the world around you uh, as you're growing up. It's just totally beautiful and totally unmissable. We've got a couple of uh, Miyazaki's on for in fact you've got uh, My Neighbour Totoro Sunday from 4 at uh, 5 to 3 and then on Monday 11am Ponyo as well so uh, they got a couple of options there uh, Right Bobby Collins let's talk about The Gift shall The we? Gift is the first film to be directed by uh, Joel Edgerton the Australian character actor who has been in many many things he played Ramesses like next to Scott and Kings uh, he was Tom Hardy's brother in Warrior as we were talking about earlier now, He wrote The Rover as well He wrote The Rover I remember being very surprised when I heard that he'd written The Rover um, I, but not half as surprised as I was when I saw his name pop up as the director on, on, on The Gift. Um, I saw the trailer for The Gift uh, before uh, it was in front of Eli Roth's horror film Knock Knock and it seems to be selling you a, a very kind of specific type of stalker based, uh, you know, harking back to those glossy 1990s stalker thrillers like Fatal Attraction, like Pacific Heights, in which you have this, uh, you know, tight family unit being infiltrated by some eerie outsider. So there's a, a kind of very obviously rich and attractive couple uh, called Robin and Simon, played by Rebecca Hall and Jason Bateman, who move back to L.A. And almost as soon as they arrive there, they reconnect with an old uh, school friend of uh, Simon's called Gordo, who was known in his school days as Gordo the weirdo, and he's been played uh, by Joel Edgerton. Now, Gordo is oddly keen to befriend Robin and Simon. He keeps popping up during the day, normally while Simon's out at work or while they're both out at work. And then he leaves a uh, series of progressively strange gifts on their doorstep. And here is the couple's reaction to finding one of them. Gordo? Did he just leave us here? He's leaving us alone in his house. He doesn't even know us. Yeah, well, maybe it's an emergency. <laughs> well, he did say it was an urgent work thing. What, what, what is it that he even does? This is bizarre. Would we ever do this? Well, no, but technically I would I would be at home to look after guests. If you had to go somewhere, he hasn't got anyone. Honey, don't a wife defend or, him. Or whatever. I'll tell you why he doesn't have a wife. He'd like to be married to you. He'd like you to be his wife. Oh, God, Simon. Yeah. Come on, honey, this guy likes you so much. Tell me you don't see it. Come I really on. don't think that is the reason why. Come was... on, honey. Why all the drop-ins and the stop-bys only when you're home alone? I think you're slightly exaggerating. I think he's obsessed with you, honey. I'm thinking Pacific Heights. Yeah, exactly. And that's what you're supposed to think. Now, as I say, this is all in the trailer that I, that I originally saw. It was a brace yeah. for a certain type of film. What is so clever about The Gift and what you, you know, the way in which it kind of keeps you on your toes is that it uses your knowledge of how thrillers work. And it's subconscious knowledge. You know, it's not even stuff that you necessarily know, but just the way in which characters are dressed yeah. or the social background or the way that the angles at which from which they're shot by the camera. Um, it uses your kind of use, uh, the, the fact that we're used to these conventions uh, 
to turn things on their head. Now, I'm, I'm, you know, it's not as simple as uh, Gordo being a nice person and the, the couple being being horrible. But, yeah. but, but it's, it's, it's much more kind of ambiguous than it, it, it first uh, looks. It's been produced by a guy called Jason Bloom, who started up a production house called Bloomhouse Productions yeah. uh, about 15 years ago, I think. And they have really been a major force in Hollywood of rolling back from the torture porn era and moving back. I mean, Insidious was theirs, a uh, sinister film, Paranormal Activity. So it's a different type of, you know, looking slightly further back in horror's heritage uh, in, in order to try something new again. Um, but the, what's clever about The Gift is it goes a step further. So you have this stuff where the, the house that they move into, the, the couple, is enormous glass-panelled walls, you know, huge windows. Now, we're used to in a, a horror movie or a thriller, those are the windows that people are seen looking into, right? Yeah. You know, the camera is kind of hovering, leaving this massive, vast expanse of clear glass and the you know, dark night sky. Suddenly there's a face at the window. So that's what you're expecting. What the gift kind of suggests, it's very, very difficult to describe this without giving me a spoiler, but... Don't! As well as looking <laughs> into a house like that, you know, windows are two-way things. They're about looking out. They're about projecting a certain yeah. image of your own life that might not necessarily be true. Why have this couple moved to LA, you know? Yeah. Why are they there? Why, why have they bought this kind of ostentatiously lovely house? So the film very, very cleverly plays with these conventions. And, um, you know, th th this I found incredibly impressive. You've got also some great performances here, much, much better than you'd expect from 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 a kind of a straightforward genre movie. I love uh, Bateman. I love Bateman. Bateman is probably better here than he's been since Juno. I mean, this is a, a, it's a much, much more complex character. He actually at first looks like the main character in the film, who's going to be the alpha male, the provider who defends his vulnerable wife. Uh, from this kind of creepy outsider who wants to, you know, be married to her. Yeah. Uh, but the film actually shifts on its axis slightly and Rebecca Hall's character becomes the main character. Now, she's in her 30s, she's married, but she's conspicuously childless. And this is something that's constantly used in thrillers to kind of set up cheap sympathy. Oh, you know, they're obviously trying to have a baby, they can't have one. So it's, yeah. it's just, it's a shortcut to something. But there's much, much, much more to this than that. And Rebecca Hall is able to do this kind of really intricate psychological scalpel work on this character. Right. And uh, really kind of enthrall you, you know, why is she in this? situation and, um, and and what does it say about her and what does it say about her relationship with her husband now because it's a thriller and it wants to thrill you it eventually has to come to this uh, you know a climactic sequence like the 1990s thrillers we're talking about it's not mm. stuff like Pacific Heights it has to end in this very amped up camp way yeah. it sort of suggests this worst possible scenario and then makes it progressively inevitable and and so it has that kind of fun ending but the suspense and the uncertainty of the earlier sequences does stay with you and it does send you up the cinema Great. thinking about these these kind of preconceptions of the way in which it's overturned I think for this to be a first you know a, a, a debut film uh, it's it, it's much 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 more accomplished than you would ever expect I think it's it's seriously impressive amazing I've desperately been trying to see it for the last couple of days and just time wise hasn't, hasn't worked out I'm excited about him as a director then as to where he's going next because yes. when you look back at his experience as a as an actor but also you know the writing stuff as well he's made loads of shorts and things like that and been a producer on a number of things it's 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 really fascinating yeah he's no sure he's a real multi-hyphenate and the idea as well that you know he notices the ways in which certain performance types of performances cue the audience into thinking certain things yeah that's a real actor's observation you know he's been used to playing those kind of characters before yeah. he knows the triggers that you know work on an audience yeah and subverts them very successfully Brilliant. Uh, thank you as well for everyone getting in touch off the back of our conversation with Catherine as well. Um, Edith, I realise that you misheard the BBFC lady as I did because I thought she'd said two teens and then realised she'd said two teams. So when you mentioned young people watching it, which she denied, I thought, not just me then. So there we go, I must have misheard I thought her. that too. I was expecting this teens? kind of clockwork orange style setup with you know, like 15 Alex DeLarge just strapped into chairs in the basement watching... All kinds of despicable, <laughs> disgusting stuff. Hard to be a god on repeat, basically. Um, but no, that's not what they do. 
<laughs> yeah. at all. I, I'm desperate to be in like a fly on the wall and on a BBFC screening and classification sort of set up and see how it works. Did that ever happen? No. No. Uh, Raw, who have we got here? This is from Spider and Mumbles. Absolutely agree with Catherine. I do not want my teenage kids seeing this film. Keep up the good work. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Uh, and this is from... Um, Filmmakers have the opportunity to alter film and achieve lower rating, so they're ultimately responsible for the certificate. Yeah, but they, then that kind of questions and creative integrity in terms of what, you know, it's, it's different opinions on what people set out to achieve. And also, yeah, film. if it defeats the purpose of the yeah. film, I think, you know, as a filmmaker, you'd probably be very reluctant to do that because you could have a softer version of Diary of a Teenage Girl. You know, there have been a lot of high school set films about girls of that age, uh, you know, working out what it means to be an adult rather than a kid. Yeah. But they don't attack the, you know, the the issue with the same total kind of clarity and honesty that this film does. Yeah. That's what sets it apart, and that doesn't necessarily make it. And certainly for me, it doesn't at all make it unsuitable. Yeah. If anything, it makes it more essential. Okay. Uh, well, next up then, shall we talk uh, Manglehorn? Yes, Manglehorn, which is a new film uh, starring Al Pacino. A thought experiment to, that I kind of apply to Al Pacino films at the moment is how far can you get into the film uh, until the main character might as well be played by Rob Brydon. Because, you know, oh. th this idea that he's uh, Pacino has become this slight caricature of himself in, in, in recent times, you know, films like Danny Collins and Righteous Kill, he just feels like he's sleepwalking through it. Manglehorn is something different, or at least it tries to do something different. It's a film by uh, a director called David Gordon Green, who's had this incredibly uh, weirdly varied career. He started out as a disciple of Terence Malick with these kind of noodly little um, rural dramas. Yeah. Then went into kind of very brash stoner comedy with Pineapple Express and Your Highness. And then has now started making these wistful, low-key character studies yeah. with actors that you may not necessarily expect to take them. He did Prince Avalanche with Paul Rudd and he did Joe with Nicolas Cage. I think Joe was a real sort of a let's try and keep Nicolas Cage as far on the straight and narrow as possible <laughs> film. It was a very worthwhile film doing. Manglehorn doesn't quite achieve that. Uh, you've got Pacino playing this former children's baseball coach who's turned locksmith and um, his life has sort of, his, his emotional life has ground to a halt. He's totally hung up on a previous relationship he had with a woman called Clara, who he writes letters to, very flowery and very uh, effusive letters every day. And these letters, as we see in the opening title sequence, are all being returned, you know, stamped returned to sender. So there's this emotional blockage in his life. Uh, he has a, a bad relationship with his, his, his son, who's played by Chris Messina, who is um, some kind of a nasty business guy who, who is not particularly proud of. Uh, he also has a cat called Fanny who has got some kind of illness who keeps getting stuck in cupboards and things. Uh, and basically, life is the gears of life have just got gummed up. And, and here he is talking to his son. Now what happened? You got everything you wanted. Yeah? Your nice houses. You got your nice uh, fancy cars. All those fancy people. And what happened to you? Turned you into a shark and a liar. That's what it did for you. I'm just telling you like it is you know i'm no saint believe me i'm just being honest with my son i'm asking for help dad help what kind of help i got a i got a pull out sofa in the house you want you want that you want to stay here i don't want your sofa you know you know what i want it would be great if you could uh could be a father what is that how about that could be okay, Jacob. You know, it could be good, Jacob. It could be okay. It could be okay. okay. Is that what being a dad is? Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. Okay, it's okay. It's okay. 
and it's okay, basically. Um, so it's, a, it's one of these symbolic career films. He's a locksmith. He's great at opening things up for other people. But of course, his own heart is kept away uh, under lock and key. There is one bright spot in his life, which is every Friday he goes to the bank and, and, and talks to this um, pretty teller called Dawn uh, by Holly Hunter. The name, obviously, very, very symbolic. Uh, you know, the career is symbolic. Uh, the name of uh, Dawn is very symbolic. This is a film that just piles on symbols. There's uh, keys, locks, of course. There's constipated cat as well. Uh, there's an old boat in there. There's a beehive. And all this time, it's like, you know, oh, it's, it's a beehive, but it's the beehive within. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's a constipated cat, but it's the constipated cat within. And, you know, this is kind of, it's a fine premise for to, to do a character study like this. But the problem with the film is it's all premise. There's not really a lot of progression in the film. Not a lot happens in Manglehor's life. He just kind of stumbles around from one awkward social encounter to the next. Of course, as Dawn kind of slowly works her feminine magic on her, and, uh, and you know, goodness knows why, because he's not a particularly nice person. But she kind of sticks with him. She sees a good soul in there, and and, and sticks with him. It, it's it's one of these things that you know the script is written by a first timer Paul Logan. It feels very first timey, as I said. The, the these uh, voiceovers with the the letters are very very flowery, and it just feels also slightly in awe of its co-star. As I said before, um, the Nicolas Cage uh, film that he did, Joe very very much was like let's embrace Nicolas Cage's best characteristics and, and make this work this is just like oh my goodness it's Al Pacino they have him repeating lines from Heat and uh, from, from Scarface as well it just feels slightly too in awe of him he looks ready to do a good performance but I, the film won't draw out of him which I, is very I enjoyed. I really enjoyed watching him in this film and I it's thing, I think for a while it's the first thing I've enjoyed watching him and he's really kind of pulled me through it as well and I don't know we talk about coming of age films earlier on and I just kind of like the whole notion of of it not being really kind of anything apart from almost like a coming of age film from a man of his age and kind of be about loneliness and about how he kind of approaches that on different levels, you know, kind of family-related relationships, you know, his pets and these things that are surrounding him and stuff. I find that a really kind of lovely experience watching it, actually. I think purely because it is that kind of turned-down performance that we've not seen from him for a very, yeah. very long time. There is pleasure to be had in that. It, it's just, for me, it's so exasperating that the film didn't live up to it because, you know, David Gordon Green has made great films before. And Joe, which I wasn't wildly blown away by, but I think it was just one of those, not a career-rescuing film, but something that reminds you why you love an actor. Mm. Nicolas Cage did that film and he, he, he did it in a way that no other actor could have done. And this just kind of doesn't feel like it embraces the potential of Al Pacino because it's slightly too in awe of having him on set. All right, well, from a cat called Fanny to a dog called Max. Yeah, How to Be a Dog. This film is uh, <laughs> basically feels like a family movie that was made 30 years ago. It's a boy and his dog film, very much in the tradition of Lassie and Beethoven. The twist is that the dog is a, a military service dog. Think of it, in fact, as being Marley and Me meets American Sniper. Uh, it begins with the dog uh, on active duty in Afghanistan. Uh, his trainer is this uh, handsome young soldier who tragically gets killed uh, on an operation. Max is then packed back to the US where he's either he's, he's either going to be put down or uh, the, the family of the soldier who, who raised him can adopt him. And for some reason, the dog takes a shine uh, to the, his trainer's younger brother, who's this young guy called Justin, who's going off the rails in a very, very gentle way. He's pirating some video games. You know, he's playing on the computer quite late at night. So not, not so much of a rascal. Basically, the film starts out with the two of them getting into scrapes. Then it becomes this weird thing where there's gun running and explosions going on. It's very, very violent in the end. Uh, it's written by the person who did Rambo 3 in a series of Jean-Claude Van Damme films. And we're running close to time. This film's doing weirder and weirder. It just feels like it's a total nothing movie. It's nonsense, but it's nonsense that kind of vaguely passes the time. All right, well, we'll talk more Max in the podcast and we'll talk CGI as well. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Robbie, your movie of the week is? It's of course, Hard to Be a God. But if you can't see that, do check out Diary of a Teenage Girl. All right, Amy Schumer, Bill Hader next week and Talking Trainwreck. Thanks for listening. Next is Drive.
Um, Max, then, should we yeah. finish off? Max, Max I kind of was aware when I was describing Max, I said it was a very conventional boy and his dog film. And then as the description went on, I realised it's actually completely insane. Um, <laughs> you, you, basically, the film is divided into these two uh, very um, distinguished parts. The first part is this idea where the boy is getting into scrapes with the dog. And, you know, is he training the dog or is the dog, dog training, training him? him. Ah, yeah. yeah, so we've seen yeah. it before. Um, Who's the master? And, he's, he, you know, there's two kind of key relationships here as well with his uh, ex, the, the, the kid's ex-military father, who's played by Thomas Hayden Church. He resents the dog because the dog played a part in his other son's death. And there's also uh, this uh, the, the young teenage girl called Carmen, who's played by a, an actress called Mia Sitlali, who's probably the best thing in it, um, who uh, loves the dog mm-hmm. and helps bring the dog out of its shell and also... Uh, as a result, Justin as well, out of his shell. Um, as I said, the, the film is uh, co-written by this guy called Sheldon Lettich, who wrote a lot of films for Jean-Claude Van Damme in the 80s. He also wrote Rambo 3. And that you're kind of watching it thinking, what on earth has made this guy write a boy in his dog movie? And then at the end, it kind of becomes very clear when um, the basically Max and Justin uncover this gun-running operation over the Mexican border. Mm. And they ride, ride around with... Well, the dog doesn't ride around on BMXs, but Justin runs around on BMXs. That would, might be a BMXs. better film. <laughs> defeating these gun runners and it gets very kind of weirdly violent and very obsessed with guns and, and kind of kind of treating guns with this kind of weird uh, honorable air we talked about the bbfc getting things wrong occasionally in my view uh, in in the in the actual show, this is an occasion where they've really got it right. They've given the film a twelve A rating, and because of the frequent gun threat, and yeah. it's just odd. You know, this is a uh, it for me. It's a total kind of tonal miscall on on the on the part of the filmmakers. It's kind of a film that pitches itself towards a family audience skewing young, and then you have this weird kind of outburst of violence in a forest at the end of it. And really, what the the, the film's moral message is, you know do your chores or you might end up getting shot in the woods and it's wow. just this really bizarre takeaway from it the, the director is this guy called Boaz Yakin who made a, a, a film called Safe with Jason Statham which is pretty good he also wrote Now You See Me that magician uh, heist film I think you know it's treatment of bereavement and about people healing after bereavement is you know compared to a film like say Big Hero 6 uh, just very broad strokes and very yeah. ham-fisted um, it's kind of hard to recommend unless you have run out of other options for things to take your kids to see and you don't mind this weird kind of bombastic uh, weapon-based showdown at the end do we have a clip we do have a clip yes here is a clip of uh, Max uh, or, or sorry I should say Justin and Carmen trying to train Max for the first time Animals can come down with post-traumatic stress, same as people can. Max bonded so closely with Kyle, it's proven impossible to get him to follow orders from anyone else. These dogs were bred to work. Take away that sense of purpose, and they're lost. Max can't serve here, and he's a danger everywhere else. Hey. Remember me? Sure you want to do this? Yeah. Okay. Slowly. No sudden moves. Sit. Good. Good boy. Okay, Sergeant. We'll be taking him home. Dog whisperer, basically. That's it. You've nailed it. You've nailed it. Dog whisperer with guns. All right. I'd like to do this email that we got in, which we didn't have time to do in the real show. It's from Rury. Rhymes with Brewery. Uh, It was during last week's show that a listener wrote in bemoaning the overuse of CGI effects versus practical effects and stating this is one of the biggest issues facing films today. He, she, 
sorry, can't remember offhand, specifically mentioned Jurassic World and why the effects from a film 20 odd years ago, Jurassic Park, should look better than those of a modern day blockbuster. My feeling here is that CGI is getting a blame for a lot of bad filmmaking as it's an easy target. Uh, basically what he's trying to say is that they need to look at things like story, script, acting and everything else that contributes to a bad film. In fact, when we fondly remember films such as the original Jurassic Park or Jaws or any similar that's held in high esteem nowadays, I believe we remember the effects better than what they actually were and are inclined to look past some of the dodgier effects work as we were so invested in the story and the characters. It's not the CGI itself that's a problem, but the way in which it is used by the filmmakers. Thanks for reading and love the show, by the way. I'm thinking Labyrinth. Yes, and I think, you know, you mentioned uh, Star Wars as well earlier. Now, mm. if you look back at the special editions, the revised versions of the original trilogy that George Lucas put together, uh, the sequence in which Han Solo meets Jabba the Hutt in A New Hope. Now, they've run, I think, about three different versions of that. And the first version that made it into cinemas, I, I, when I saw when I was a kid, um, it, you know, that was Jabba the Hutt on screen, undoubtedly. If you look back at those, that particular digital model of the character at that time, it looks horrendous. And yeah. they've since replaced uh, the, the the model at least once. I think there was a second kind of a, not a total replacement, but a second sweep of tidy up for the recent Blu-ray release. Um, but, you know, that's something that just, because the, the effect is, uh, you know, certainly made with very, very old digital technology, yeah. it looks conspicuously bad. At the time when we saw it, you didn't notice it. It was just Jabba the Hutt. Yeah. I mean, Jaws, is, he mentioned Jaws in the email, so it's a very long email, which I couldn't read the whole thing out, but we kind of got the gist of what we are saying. Jaws is another great example. That yeah, but the thing is, with well. a great film, when you're watching it, you enter into a contract with the film yeah. that you're going to kind of take what's presented mm -hmm. to you on screen as what happens. Uh, the example of Mad Max as well, George Miller, that was that was there you know that is a film that's full of cgi but you don't see it because it's airbrushing at harnesses and safety equipment that was used to keep the cast safe when they're racing along with their head you know like three inches from this rocky desert that's rushing past at 80 miles an hour yeah now you know that that's not a kind of a big bombastic use of cgi where you think oh well that's fake the whole idea of it is that you're looking at it thinking that's real and again with the big whirlwind in that movie you know that's obviously cgi but because yeah. it kind of fits so perfectly into the rhythm of that action sequence and it feels like this massive operatic climax to this race across the desert you buy into it and you're you, you know you're there and you're sold on it um, other flip side of the coin, that's my pencil, uh, is Pixels that we talked about last week. Film's terrible, CGI's awesome. Yes. <laughs> it's like, you know, I guess there's other examples of kind of how CGI can save something or it can ruin something. I think or... the quality of the CGI <laughs> does not necessarily stand in any relation to the quality of the film. You know, you can admire effects work in terrible movies and you can bemoan the effects work in otherwise great movies. Do you think CD CGI does take the rap though sometimes for a film generally? Yeah, of course, it's an easy yeah. And, and the thing is as well, when you have uh, press tours like the Mission Impossible one that go on and on about, you know, the, the, the absolute importance of not just practical effects, but of actors doing their own stunts. This thing about actors doing their own stunts it's admirable to an extent, but I do worry that it's totally selling short the work of real stuntmen and women who are kind of out there. You know, of course, Tom Cruise is not hanging onto an airplane with his fingertips for real. You know, there is an element of deception in that. And that's the magic of cinema. And, you know, there will be at one stage in that sequence, I'm sure there must have been a stunt performer involved. And it's this kind of cheapening of, you know, oh, we don't need them. We're going to do it for real. Mm. You know, Keanu Reeves as well in, uh, in John Wick. A lot of that film was sold as being it was Keanu Reeves doing it for real. But of course, you know, there was and I remember interviewing um, him for the movie and he was saying, you know, of course, there were stuntmen doing it because, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm in my 40s. I it can't, was made by stuntmen. You know, I, I can't. <laughs> necessarily, exactly. The directors were stuntmen. Yeah. And so it's this idea that, you know, we're kind of talking down these backstage achievements in filmmaking mm. that, that gives me slight kind of pause for concern. All right. Well, listen, um, 
That's the, 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 the brief version of that was, I agree. I agree. All right. Well, listen, uh, we'll be back next week, actually, uh, for our hat trick of uh, uh, the Collins and Bowman show. And we'll also be joined by Amy Schumer and Bill Hader, who'll be talking train wreck. I would go and watch that every night of the week just to give you an idea of what I think of it already. Um, listen, thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next week. Cheers, Robbie. Cheerio. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.